so excited for today's podcast with these two incredible women, Rena Lazar and Michelle Pante. What I love about these two women is that they are they are so strong in their conviction for living a, a full impactful inspiring life but not only that but they're not afraid to contemplate death as well and with their business willow end of life that's willow eol.com we dive into talking about what it means to contemplate your death what it means to have a legacy um, that you leave behind in which you want to make the world a better place and what does this impact of your mortality mean in the way you live today now with the eat real to heal podcast we're all about bringing people on who take their health into their own hands to extend their life so that they can decrease their morbidity um, risks so they can increase their longevity and how long they live well on this planet and this is something different for today's podcast where we actually talk about death a lot so if you're someone who is afraid of dying if you are afraid to go out and have your will made if you're afraid to live your life to the fullest because you're afraid of dying this is definitely the podcast for you and knowing the services that willow provides will actually free you from that fear of dying and will help you to live more thoughtfully to be more mindful in this life that you're given this beautiful existence that you have here on earth today and so stay tuned as we dive into what these beautiful women have created um, they have books that you can get to fill out your legacy your love letters to address your heart wills and wills in general um, and they have an incredible retreat that they're hosting in Mexico so I know that they already have a number of people signed up so there's probably not a whole lot of seats left so if you're somebody who wants to dive deep into the world of your existence and your imminent death that awaits us all actually then you're going to want to sign up for their retreat Rena is fueled by her passion for personal growth and transformation uh, she's a graduate of the beyond yonder virtual school of community death caring in canada she's also committed to facilitating green and holistic approaches to death care in our families communities in our culture as well and prior to doing this work with willow and creating willow she had created and led piece it together which she talks about in this podcast she's an incredible woman who brought youth together palestinian israeli and canadian youth um, together to make films and to dialogue and to create community engagement and Michelle Ponte, her partner, she's also an inspiring woman who is energized by death, dying, and grief as pathways to healing. And we dive into how she got into this work and how the death of women in her prenatal class or the babies of the women in her prenatal class and others in her community, how that inspired her to really look at death and grief as a way to heal today and now. She used to work for the Green Burial Society of Canada, which took place during her tenure with Lees & Associates, which is North America's Cracker Jack Cemetery design and planning firm. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Let us know what you think about it. I had, I'm so energized by everything that we cover today that it has made me definitely not 
want to put off thinking about my death any longer. And I hope it does the same for you. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and today we have an amazing episode with Rena Lazar and Michelle Pante from Willow End of Life. And today's podcast is really all about labia, living, and dying. And that's Rena laughing. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> uh, such a pleasure to have you in here because on our Eat Real to Heal show, we often talk about people like yourself, Rena, who have taken their health into their own hands, where you've been faced with a health challenge that we're going to talk about, all centered around your beautiful labia. I say beautiful, I've never seen it before, but I'm assuming <laughs> it is beautiful just because it is one of Mother Nature's creations. And um, so we're going to talk about how you took your health into your own hands and you didn't rest until you found a solution. And that's what is um, really the theme of our show is to tell people that there's always more than one answer to healing. There's always more than one answer to medication and surgery and um, all the pharmaceutical drugs that are out there. Pharmaceutical drugs are amazing, but uh, they only have a place when there is absolutely no other option. If you can use food first, which is responsible for 90% of our health, um, it's best to use that. And then after that, I mean, there are so many other modalities that we can use, everything from chiropractic care to homeopathy to acupuncture and energy medicine and um, psychotherapy and hypnotherapy and I mean the list is so long we teach our clients how to build out their whole health team so that they know that they have more than one option um, before they settle on the drugs and the surgery and that's exactly what you did um, Rena. so you had a particular condition. Uh, can you tell us about when you first discovered it? And I know it's a, probably a pretty sensitive subject, but you know what? Let, let's do it. Let's talk about it. Because I am certain that there are millions of other women around the planet that are suffering from the same thing right now. And I have a feeling your story can help them tremendously. Well, sensitive is the operative word here. Um, <laughs> when you have a sensitive, um, when your vulva is sensitive. So I probably knew there was a problem um i'm thinking when i was pregnant or 14 years ago but i don't so uh, vulvodynia is the name of the issue and that really just means sore vulva and you're right millions of women have it so many women have it and don't even know they have it i had it before i knew there was an issue i just thought sex was painful like that must be part of having sex you just there's a little pain involved sometimes a lot of pain and eventually i discovered no something's not right here Doctors thought I had yeast infections, had a gazillion of those uh, tests and treatment for yeast, nothing changed. So then finally I, 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 like, I had to almost like insist on my doctor, like I've got to see a specialist, this is not normal. So I went to a specialist, a gynecologist, and apparently a classic case of what's called vulvodynia, which like I said means sore vulva. And so there are all sorts of different things that they can do about it. One of them was taking very low doses of antidepressants, which I tried and just like for like 24 hours, I hated it so much. I stopped immediately. Okay, so what, what did you feel when you were taking the and antidepressants oh. for a sore? Very vulva? low dose, extremely okay. low dose. Apparently it helps women. Like I actually know somebody who it helped her a lot and she liked the feeling of it. But for me, one type made me um, incredibly anxious, like super anxious, like was the most, one of the most uncomfortable feelings. So 
called the doctor. He said, okay, stop immediately. I did, you know, no brainer. And it was such a low dose. And then about a month later, I tried a different one. And then I was incredibly lethargic. Quit that right away. So that wasn't going to work for me. Um, there's some, there's some physiotherapy that I tried that helps you manage it, which, you know, does help. But, and what did that physiotherapy look like? Uh, it's about, it's really about learning to, um, what's the word, uh, to strengthen your core and the muscles around, so the Kegels, and learning like how to strengthen, how to how to tighten them, how to let them go at operative moments. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and she yes, means during sex. Yes, that is what I mean. <laughs> um, and otherwise, I mean, there's it's, it doesn't only hurt during sex. For, and I didn't even have such a bad case. I know some women who, who are in pain all the time can't wear tight clothes, can't ride a bike, you know, blah blah blah. For me, it was mostly sex, sometimes you know, wiping myself or things like that. Um, so these solutions weren't helping me enough. Uh, I, I probably was spent 10 years asking different doctors for help and nothing. 10 years. And did you see multiple different doctors during Um, that time? Different GPs, one or two gynecologists, physiotherapists. Yeah. And then, um, I took, so then the next thing was to just do, I kept researching it. And then I discovered that there's a link, it, now, vulvodynia, like I said, it means sore vulva, so that means it could be so many different causes and it's gonna be different for different women. But I did find out that there's, for some women, there's a link between foods that are high in oxalates mm-hmm. and the soreness. And and then, so I, I thought about that because I had once done this, one of these juice cleanses, like these, you know, I was gonna do it for 10 days, but by day three I had to stop because what happened was, I, when I was bleeding, I was, I was seeing blood, oh, sorry, when I was urinating, I was seeing blood. So and I just while you were doing the juice cleanse, yes, like about day three, and mm-hmm. the, in this juice cleanse, it was not a Gerson thing. This, so this was like tons of beets and right. mostly beets and carrots and some other things. And so I was seeing your, I was seeing blood in my urine. So I assumed that I had a urinary tract infection. Went to see a doctor, like just in a clinic, told them what's happening. The doctor agreed with me, put me on um, antibiotics. I said he couldn't understand what the link would be between juicing and urinary tract infection. And it for sure was not beets in your urine. For sure, for sure. No, no, for sure. I know the difference. Anyway, so then uh, stopped the juice, took antibiotics, which in retrospect was a really silly thing to do. Then when I thought back to it, like several years later, and saw that there's a connection between oxalates and vulvodynia, I was like, okay, one of the highest, the, what the vegetable with probably the most oxalates like in the world is beets. Beets, exactly. <laughs> Super high, like off the charts high. So I was like, oh, th- I didn't have a urinary tract infection. I was just having like fissures in my labia and they were bleeding. Yeah. So then I had to figure out, oh, there's so many really great, beautiful, healthy foods that are high in oxalate, like spinach and kale. Like, what's an oxalate? Yeah, uh, you probably can answer that better than I can, Nikki, what an oxalate is. So oxalates are found in almost all fruits and vegetables um, that are out there and plant foods that are out there. And basically, the body has to break it down. And it can be really hard for people who have weak digestion, for people who have any chronic disease, for people who have an issue breaking down oxalates to begin with um it's just it's it's an acid in the body that builds up and so for people who have a hard time breaking it up it can cause so many different symptoms like everything from sore joints to obviously vulvodynia i had one issues lots of kidney issues because it, ha- it gets broken down as well through the kidneys and uh, through the urine, um, urinary tract. And so what happens, I had a client too, who very, very similar to you. For her, it wasn't happening in her labia. For her, it was happening in her mouth. So her mouth mm-hmm. would bleed, her tongue and her cheeks and her ankles would bleed. So it caused her capillaries to um, rupture. And that would be like fissures, little tiny, tiny, you know, microscopic mm-hmm. fissures all throughout all the 
sensitive parts of her body. And, um, and you know what? Chances are she probably had it in her labia as well, but uh, she didn't, you know, obviously tell me about that. And so when she stopped eating the oxalates, what would happen is that she'd stop having these um, blood vessel ruptures. And But what happened is that as she increased her digestion and was able to actually break down the oxalates, so for her she had to cook all the foods that were high in oxalates, that heat helps to break it down also consuming your um, foods that are high in oxalates with oil so Mm -hmm. if you cook beets you would cook them with or eat them with a flax oil Um, and so oils will also help to do that as Mm -hmm. well or some people use coconut oil even though we don't use coconut oil in um, the therapy that we teach yeah yeah anyway so that's what an oxalate is or oxalates are and um, I was avoiding all those great foods which made me think which which so imagine life, no nuts, no seeds, no berries, no beans, no, m- most leafy greens, not, not all, but most leafy greens. All from the brassica family, like the kales yeah. and yeah. the cabbages and yeah. um, Brussels yeah. sprouts, probably, I imagine. No, they were fine, actually. Brussels sprouts, okay. Broccoli? Yeah, yeah. broccoli's fine. Okay. But anyway, a whole bunch. So I, there wasn't, so anyway, so. I, I have to interject here, though, because it's interesting. So no nuts, no seeds, no berries. Mm-hmm. Those are all the foods on the Gerson therapy that are we, no yeah, we say stay off of them for mm. the life of the therapy yeah. um, while you're reversing your chronic disease right. or cancer. Right, but no spinach, no beets. Yeah, no you can't pain. have any of that. It has to be cooked. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I just had some. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but you're all good now. You're all well, good. Okay, so tell us what happened so, next. So you've seen all these GPs. Nobody can help you. You find out. You discover. Where did you find out about the oxalates? How there's did you, a website all about vulvodynia actually um i forget what it's called right now but if you if you just like research vulvodynia you get it there's one website with tons of information and all sorts of different possible ways to potentially help so that so i tried that and i realized that there was a strong connection for me between oxalates and vulvodynia but i just didn't want to continue living my life without eating those foods so uh about how long ago was this now when i went to see a naturopath named dr brian davies in um, vancouver in north vancouver told him about it in the first meeting he's actually a biochemist by background and he said hmm sounds like you might have um too much fungus in your gut i'm going to prescribe something called nystatin and i said any side effects no no just try this like okay try orally or orally pills within weeks i was I, i was actually just on my way to the middle east to israel and palestine so there's tons of oh yeah um chickpeas, sesames, right? All that high. (laughs) So I went there and I was being a little careful, but I wasn't avoiding stuff. And then I was like, oh, I don't seem to have too bad. So I ate more and more. And then I realized, oh, it's not really bothering me that much. And so that really seemed to do something. I'm not sure if it completely got rid of the problem, but it definitely helped. Um, I'm actually been doing Gerson therapy now for one week. And um, it's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I think it might be making a difference as well. So way to go. We'll okay. see. We'll see another four weeks. <laughs> okay. I well, I want to definitely check back in with yeah. you. Um, and definitely a lot of people who start the Gerson therapy um, when they're doing it because they have a chronic disease, they also have an abundance of um, fungi overgrowth mm. and parasites and bacteria overgrowth and not the good kind of bacteria. Yeah. And so what uh, that therapy does is put everything back into balance as well. And I think for you, because you haven't started the supplements yet, um, the iodine, the thyroid, the potassium, all of those, the, uh, as well as the acetal which is your hydrochloric acid and what helps to further break down food so what happens is you take that it builds up the digestive enzymes in your gut um, and the acid in your gut which breaks down the food so that way when it hits the digestion you don't have that oxalic acid build up but what's the name of the naturopath again that you saw 
Dr. Brian Davies. Okay, we're going to put Dr. Brian Davies' link at the end of this. Any uh, women out there, or men, because men are affected by uh, fungal overgrowth as well, then um, we're going to put you in touch with um, Dr. Davies. Yeah, and it, it was a male friend of mine that recommended him, actually, and yeah, he's great. Okay, incredible. So what I love about your story is that you didn't stop trying. And I love how you Mm. refer to uh, research as Dr. (laughs) Google. So you went to Dr. Google and you just kept looking. And the fact that you kept telling your story as well, because a lot of times we can go see a new practitioner and we forget to tell them the stuff that's going on in our body. And the fact that you just said, hey, and I have this condition could you you know anything you know about it and you know you eventually arrive at that one person who's able to provide you with a solution and so the moral here is to not give up so you're right I keep telling the story but this is the first time I'm telling it in quite the public manner that this is usually it's in an <laughs> office with closed doors and it's not going to go out of the office it's not going to go out to hundreds and yeah, thousands no, of people no here we go but the men you, of the world thank you Rena. yes exactly and the power of story is so huge because a lot of times when we're faced with, you know, sometimes we're embarrassed or we feel shame around whatever condition it is that we have. And whether it's type 2 diabetes or heart mm. disease or, you know, whatever it is, people um, tend to have shame, guilt. Um, you know, they blame themselves or they think, well, it's genetic. And so it's just the luck of the draw. And then they don't want to share their stories with other people. But by communicating and talking and there's always an answer to our health mm. issues. And it could take us five years to discover it it could take us 20 years to discover it but what does that day look like when you do discover a solution Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and And all of a sudden you're you're symptom free how great does that feel good great I felt like a a kid in a candy store with like nuts (laughs) exactly and seeds and And beets um the thing about storytelling so the vulvodynia website which uh it's not hard to find it it's I mean that's how I found all these things out because other women have told their stories. So obviously, yeah, story, t- talking about the problem is we learn from each other. It's, it's very powerful. Exactly. And that's what this whole entire podcast is yeah. about. Um, so I want to get into talking about Willow. Thank you for sharing that story, uh, Rena. And so that covers the labia portion of this <laughs> show. Let's it may come back. You never know. <laughs> yes, exactly. We can always tie it back we into. We can always tie up. Yeah, for yes, sure. Tie up. No, tie, tie up, in. <laughs> So that's another show. Yeah. That's another show. Exactly. <laughs> that's my other podcast. My alter ego podcast is talking. So uh, talking about living and dying. So you two women came together, Michelle and Rena, to start Willow End of Life. Can Michelle, do you want to jump in and tell us about what you were doing before you did this? Because you have an interesting background. There's not a lot of people that I've met that uh, love exploring dying, grief, death. Um, Do you want to tell us about your past experience with the Green Burial Society of Canada and what that looked like? Sure. So just when Rena approached me about the possibility of creating um, something together, I was working part-time with a landscape architecture company called Lees & Associates, and they are uh, North America's kind of crackerjack cemetery planning and design company. Uh, focused on sustainability and cemetery development and in particular have an expertise in green burial. And I was working there um, part-time and a lot of my work was focused on launching the Green Burial Society of Canada. And I ended up at Lees & Associates uh, after about three quarters of the journey to become a licensed funeral director. So I had completed the two-year academic program 
to become a licensed funeral director in the province of BC. And that happens while simultaneously working full time. And the workplace I was in was a corporately owned funeral home uh, with lots of um, good people with warm, open hearts trying to do the best job they can in helping folks. And I found myself pretty burnt out, also being um, a mom to a little girl at the time and uh, actively involved in my parents' aging. And basically found that the, um, the, the company I worked for is a publicly traded corporation. It owns thousands of cemeteries and funeral homes in North America as well as Europe. And that structure um, meant that there was ways of doing business that were not a fit for me. Mm-hmm. And I had um, actually entered the profession knowing that I, f- I wanted to be close, as close as I could to grief, really. And I had, um, I had trained as a hospice volunteer and found myself actually volunteering to work with the bereaved rather than the dying. Most, most of the work of hospice is supporting, actively supporting the dying and the families who are part of that journey. And then there's always um, aftercare, so bereavement support for families. And that's particularly what I was drawn to. And I found I wanted to be closer to uh, the death. And the only thing I could think of I did, you know, some digging around, and the only thing I could think of was being a funeral director because, you know, that's like, unless I'm going to be a palliative care physician or something, that's as close as one gets to the person has died, and now what do we do? So I'm really curious about that. So uh, when you were going through this um, process and discovering that this is what you wanted to do, because this is definitely like you are a very small percentage of the population that is, were you fascinated by it? Did you have an experience in your life around death? Like what was it that brought you to wanting mm-hmm. to be that funeral director and be close to death? Um, so just cut me off if this is too long. Yeah, no. <laughs> when I, th- when I recall like where did the path begin, mm-hmm. I believe it actually began in my prenatal class with, um, my husband and I. I thought you were going to say when you were in. No. in no. utero. I never know. Pro- you know, probably if I uh, looked for that thread. But really, what happened was in our prenatal class, um, very tragically, and I guess maybe not so abnormally, but two of the families that had a child um, at the same time as we did um, had that child die. One was stillborn, and one died a few days after its birth. Mm-hmm. So that. What was just so mind-boggling to have just brought new life into the world and to recognize that there is, you know, four people, you know, in the most immediate sense, who were heartbroken because this new life didn't maintain itself. It didn't continue. So I'm not even sure to the degree to which that sunk in, but it was a bit of a fogginess around my daughter's new life and my life as a parent. And then within a couple of years, like I'd say less than two years, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So big loss with a lot of grief Mm -hmm. that as a parent to a little person, I didn't uh, give a lot of attention to the loss there and, and the feelings, expression of my feelings there. And around that time, my husband's workmate's wife and they had a child the same age as ours and lived in our neighborhood. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer and died. Mm. 
The little girl. No, the mom. Oh, the mom. So the parent. So my mirror, right? Her husband's my husband's peer. We have kids the same age. She lives around the corner. She gets cancer and she dies. And through her journey to the end, I had a very small role in being part of her care team. Her name is Therese Bax. Mm -hmm. And um, she was getting support from an amazing organization called Kalanish. And it's kalanish.org. And one of the things she did with them, in addition to support groups, was a healing retreat. Mm -hmm. And she uh, died at home. And uh, those were, like, the idea of dying at home was not something I really hadn't thought much about dying. But here she was exploring doing it differently and finding meaning in the death, her own death, and what that meant for her and her family. Um, So I read everything I could, written by the people involved in Kalanish, Janie Brown in particular as their executive director. And soon after that, like within a span of a year, I had two children die in childbirth. So I had two, sorry, not childbirth, in pregnancy. So uh, a little being who I believe was a little boy named Kian mm. and a little girl um, who, who I believe, you know, a little being I thought, I thought was a little girl who we named Lilia. And um, so all this loss, all this grief, but I've got a like 18-month-old little girl and I was also working part-time for um, a friend's company and, you know, taking care of our, our home. And then I had a car accident. Oh and the goodness. car accident, and I was relatively speaking fine, and nobody was seriously hurt, but it led me to an amazing massage therapist who's also a somatic therapist. Her name's Erica Moore, and she's ericamoore.ca in Vancouver. And she had me understand that a car accident was a loss. I hadn't really thought about that. I'm like, I have a car accident, I need physical help. And I, I'd done like gazillions of hours of therapy before. Um, so I had some, I think a fair amount of self-awareness, but not much body awareness. Mm-hmm. So she uh, helped me understand that the loss in the car accident was an opportunity to, uh, not even understand, to experience healing about previous losses. Mm-hmm. So I did this amazing work with her where I really f- experienced in a holistic way grief as a pathway to healing. And I just felt like that's it. That's that's what I want to be a part of, getting grief out of our collective closet and grief as a pathway to healing. And how do I get close to grief? Well, first I went to hospice and then I said, not close enough. I said, I wanna, I'm going to death itself. Wow. So that's how I became a licensed funeral director. But I didn't complete the process because it was, uh, I was really burnt out. Um, and I, I looked for kindred spirits and I found them at Leeds and Associates and the Green Burial Society of Canada. Wow. And so, I mean, the stories that you tell, I mean, I can resonate with definitely um, the women who've lost their babies, you know, in, at near the end of pregnancy, at the beginning of pregnancy. Um, shortly after the baby comes into the world, I taught prenatal yoga and I also taught birthing classes Mm. birthing classes for men actually or partners birth partners not just men um, on how to support the women going through childbirth but I mean these are just hundreds of women I worked with and you see loss and death in um, so many cases and and it's hard and I don't think I probably processed that the way you did where you 
dove deep into it and then it the outcome was this that you mm-hmm. even wanted to get closer yeah. to death but where, i did until i had the car accident exactly right? <laughs> yeah and um and especially the work that i do as well i mean a lot of people come to me at the very end stage of their cancer at the very end stage of their chronic disease and um i probably have a lot of work to do where i have to process their deaths and instead i just push it under the cover and say or the carpet and say, okay, work with the next client. So I'm really, really fascinated by this because I know it's definitely work I need to do with myself Mm. to probably address it. And I know I'm going to have to take some of your workshops as well. So I love your story, how you um, arrived here. So um, can you tell me what Willow is about then? And actually, let's dive to Rena. And Rena, um, before Willow, you had started an organization called Piece It Together. Can you tell us about that? Uh, because both of you have been involved in, I mean, what we can say is sustainable community development and, mm-hmm. and life development. And so tell us about Piece It Together. Sure. Piece It Together, which was alive for about tw- 11 years, uh, is an organization that empowered youth to promote peace through dialogue, filmmaking, and um, community connections. And so it brought together Israeli, Palestinian, and local youth, a groups of about 30, um, here in BC. And they together, we, they did dialogue. Um, they created short films about the conflict. And then they went back to their communities to screen those films and, and have discussions about it. So that's what we did. One of, and one of the times it was at, in beautiful Pemberton, actually. Um, so yeah, that was happened for, like I said, 11 years. I think we had four, four different programs over the years where we had the camps, let's call them, and uh, had an enormous impact on everybody who was a part of it, the youth, the volunteers, the staff, and then it just, we we had to close it down after a while because it was becoming financially not sustainable, and there's lots of, I can talk about that for another three hours, but I won't. Um, So yeah, that's what I was doing there. So then when that finished, I was thinking, okay, I want to do something entrepreneurial. I think you and I discussed some things as well. We did, yeah, we did. And I thought of you and I thought of Michelle, because I know you were both up to really amazing things. Um, and uh, I, when I think about it, so here I am going from, you know, peace, world peace to death. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I guess I'm attracted to the big existential questions in life. <laughs> I'd say for as long as I know you. Yeah. Yes, you've been. So, yeah. So that's, I mean, I've also have stories around death and grief in my life. I think everyone does. And, and they probably most definitely play a role into why I'm doing what I'm doing right now as well. And, um, yeah, that's what I was doing right before. Right before. And then, so you two came together and you were exploring, you know, different things that you can do. And then Willow, this beautiful, I mean, your website is gorgeous. The programs that you offer are gorgeous. So tell us about Willow and what Willow does for people. I'll just tell you how we we got to this point and then I'll let Michelle Mm -hmm. tell you more about Willow. So, um, so I approached Michelle while she was still working at the landscape architecture firm and I said, hey, you know, because a few years before that, we'd gotten together to catch up, and she was telling me all about why she's, that she's starting to be a funeral director. And like you said, like, I don't know anybody studying to be a funeral director. So I was just, really? Like, what's that about? And she started telling me about green burial and home, you do it yourself, home funerals and everything like that. And I was, you know, when you're and sitting. Wh- can we go back? What are green burial? Because okay. Michelle talked about it yeah. a little bit. Well, let's just. Should I do that right now? Yeah, okay. I want to know about green burial. Sure. So green burial is just um, a different. So. I, it's hard to talk about green burial without saying what conventional burial is. So right. conventionally, if you're buried uh, after you die, you'll be, so in this part, most of North, this is true for most of North America. You'll be buried um, in a sort of like a, a burial park. Uh, the cemetery will 
require that you get a liner for the grave. So that's made most usually out of concrete. So your casket, which could be whatever kind of casket you want, it could have toxic materials if you want, or it doesn't have to, obviously, but you could be your, your kind of casket. M many of them have um, old growth forest wood and you know a lot of toxic glue and, and mm -hmm. metal involved. So then that casket will be placed in this liner. So it's not even going directly on the earth, which very much slows down the process of decomposition. There's the option to be embalmed. A lot of people don't realize this, that that is an option. It is not a requirement. But and embalming is what? Embalming is the removal of the body's fluids, including all of its blood, um, and a, a formaldehyde being injected into the body to uh, the, the three, three reasons stated for embalming are sanitation, preservation, and restoration. So the idea, the the proposal is the body needs to be sanitized in this way. Uh, it will preserve the body for longer to slow down the natural decomposition. And then restoration in the sense that somebody, um, people can be made to look more lifelike. Mm -hmm. And that is for some people believed to give them peace of mind uh, to see their loved one looking better Imagining than they were. That, yes. like, this is post Funeral. Yes. It's not just no, to this keep before we, burial. This is oh to keep them looking like they were like at an, the, for the funeral, like an open casket yes. situation. Okay. Yeah. Um, although some people actually get embalmed and nobody sees them. Right. Um, and then if somebody has, for example, a a tragic death where they're in a car accident and they um, are really disfigured, uh, sometimes people have the restoration process where they're kind of put back together uh, again to facilitate ideas about what the bereaved need mm -hmm. so yeah so back to the conventional burial so those all those things can happen and most of the things must happen not the embalming it's an option and then the burial park the cemetery is often you know landscaped with all sorts of who knows what kinds Toxic of chemicals right? and pesticides so, and herbicides exactly yeah. so that's a conventional burial so a green burial is basically a, an alternative it's sort of going back to the way it used to be really so there's absolutely no embalming allowed in green burial the casket must be 100% biodegradable, or you can be buried in just a shroud, so you don't need a casket, and that shroud would be biodegradable. Shroud meaning, you know, the, the clothing or the... Um, wrapped in fabric. Wrapped in fabric of some sort that's biodegradable. Uh, bodies would be placed directly on the earth, in some cases fairly close to the uh, ground level so that they decompose even quicker. Uh, in some kinds of green burial, there's, it's called natural burial, where the uh, uh, native plants would be... Uh, put there and minimal, requiring minimal landscaping. And there's even something called restoration, um, sorry, not restoration, conservation burial, which is where you take a piece of land that might um, otherwise be at risk of some sort of development and you preserve it by turning it into a cemetery. So say, take a forest mm -hmm. and say, we're going to turn this forest into a cemetery. We're not going to take down any trees, yeah. but we're going to make it a cemetery. And now, for, so from then on, it's protected. It cannot be developed in any other way. Oh, That's wow. the short and can anybody do that, or how does one go about... A green burial? Yeah, it's saying, um, so saying that they want to protect land and uh, turn it into a burial site. That's a good question. So you, you have the answer to that better than I do? <laughs> um, what, what has happened typically in the United Kingdom and in the United States, where there are hundreds of uh, conservation burial areas, is typically land trusts are developed. Oh, okay. So it's basically... You know, uh, civil society engaging uh, to make this happen. So you might have um, 
whether it's conservation organizations or just citizens organizations saying, let's create a land trust that owns this land and our mission, our, our intention is to preserve it. And then we go about getting a, a application for cemetery status. Okay, interesting. So these are all things that I've never once contemplated mm-hmm. at all. Never mm-hmm. contemplated. I have no problem with dying. And I think it's because I live my life to the fullest. And I, you know, have, I always project myself into the future and say, mm-hmm. on my deathbed, mm-hmm. is this okay how I've lived my life? You know, do I have any regrets right now? If I do, I need to fix them now. Um, are there things that I haven't done that I need to do? And have I loved my family enough? All of those things. So for me, um, it's a matter of just knowing that I'm on my deathbed. No regrets. Life is good. I've lived it to the fullest. And, you know, right now I can say that I've done that, even though there's a million more things I want to do, but I'm good with it. But I have not contemplated. Um, I mean, beyond the, there's so many different ways of managing the body when we die. Um, everything from being cremated. Um, I just saw these amazing composting bags. Do you know about them? Which ones? Oh, there, there's probably yeah. lots of different yeah. types. Yeah. Yeah. So composting bags that you can be buried in and then they just help you to break down faster. And I think Oh, the mushroom suits? Is it composting yes, or so that's burial, suits. not compost? Mushroom suits. Is that what oh, they are? Oh, compost. Not Yeah. Okay. So yes. Mushroom suits, I think you're talking about. Yeah. That they help you to decompose the body even faster. I mean, there's so many different things. Mm-hmm. But now, is this a huge problem right now in the world with... Um, burial sites where we would want to place the whole body into the ground because I imagine with you know we're in the billions of people on the planet now and everybody's going to die and where do they go and what does that look like for yeah so in Europe you when you um, purchase and I'm putting that in air quotes a burial plot you're purchasing the right to well anywhere you're not purchasing the, the land you're purchasing the right to internment but in Europe it's just 30 years you, you're you're going to be buried there for 30 years, and after 30 years, they're going to dig up whatever remains are there and kind of put you in a very respectable communal area with other people who have been dug up. Okay. <laughs> and then that gravesite will be reused because okay. they, they don't have much choice there. In North America, that's extremely rare to reuse a grave, and one of the three, p- potentially three at the most, places that you can do that is in Vancouver, B.C. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's a slightly different model, so it's not about just a 30-year right of internment. It's... Um, Basically, when you buy a, a plot in the Vancouver's City Run Cemetery, which is called Mountain View, um, there's room for two full bodies and eight, up to eight cremated remains to be buried in one plot. And then, when the last, this, the, when the second, after 40 years after the second body has been in there, um, any family member or anyone that the deceased has designated can be added to that grave. So what they do is they would go dig up, go carefully dig it up. If they find any remains, which, you know, if, they're, if you're buried without in all biodegradable, um, uh, you know, buried right in the earth with a biodegradable casket or shroud or something, there shouldn't be a whole lot of remains left. But if there are any remains, they'll be carefully put aside, dig deeper, maybe find that next person in there, carefully put them aside, dig a little deeper, carefully put the two back, and then the grave is ready for the next family member or the designee, whatever that word is, designated. Um, <laughs> so this is quite... It's very uh, radical. Yeah, it's and it's quite, you know, I think that we often don't think, or some people might think, you know, there's an afterlife after we die, you come back as, you know, a butterfly or a bear mm-hmm. or beaver or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, there's so many different concepts as to what happens after we die. But I'm just thinking about the practical aspects that, like, when you're dead, there's still a lot of resources going into managing mm-hmm. your existence mm-hmm. on this earth and your body and everything. Like, it is quite 
yeah. a lot to consider. Yeah, and then cremation, which is primarily when we say cremation, we're talking about flame-based cremation. Many people think that that's more environmentally um, su- sustainable than burial because it might be more environmentally sustainable than conventional burial, but it's certainly not more environmentally sustainable than green burial. Um, there are many reasons to do mm-hmm. cremation. Sometimes it's for spiritual and other uh, reasons. And we, we don't, you know, as, as as a company, we don't recommend you should do this or you should do right. that. We're just what we want people to, to do is know what their choices are. I, w- I really just want to respond to something you said earlier, Nikki. You said uh, you've never really thought about this before, and that's where like what you do and we do have a lot in common. Like, how many times have you met people that said, "I never really thought about what's in my food"? Oh, like exactly. right? <laughs> like oh, and so it's like this. We're both doing um, kind of radical things that are on one t- on the one hand they're very radical, and on the other hand they're so obvious and simple. Yes, and they're they're also very taboo. Both both of them. Yeah. Both of them very taboo. Like you want me to change the way I eat? But my Are you grandmother cooked yeah, food like, like this, and, and I should I, be eating I, it? Like I don't even want to go there. I mean, you, right? Most yeah. people don't want to go there. It, t- it probably takes years before they go. Oh, I really have to go there. And same with death. Like we live in a death denial, death fearing society. Yeah. And what we find is when people come to our workshops or you know read our materials, or they they realize, wow, I feel so enriched, alive, and connected to myself. Like I've I've never felt so great. And so when someone says to me. How could you keep doing that work, Rena? Isn't it morbid? Isn't it? I'm like, absolutely not. No, this is so <laughs> beyond fascinating for me right now because even just talking about cremation, when you said, you know, some people think cremation is a more sustainable way. And I mean, I was in, you know, the energy sector and green building, mm-hmm, right. uh, you know, sustainability for years. And so for me, I want to make sure that, you know, my remaining days and years on this planet and even afterwards are truly not taking up any more of the Earth's resources. And so what is the most, I, I would want you to tell yeah. me actually. Yeah you know, which is the most um, sustainable way. And I know for sure when I was in India in... um in um, Varanasi. Yes, thank you, Varanasi. <laughs> and, you know, and seeing the shrines that are there and the pilgrimage of people who travel for miles to go there and to be, um, you know, burned and cremated and their ashes dumped into the Ganges and, you know, seeing people swimming in the Ganges and the dead buffalo in the Ganges. Like, I mean, it was one of the pl- the closest, I-, I would say, that I've been to so much death. Like, mm-hmm. I've been beside mm-hmm. people and been with them while they died. Um, but that was something else. But at the same time, I mean, the whole entire city is covered in smoke. Yeah, and the CO2 emissions are off. Out of, you know, exactly. <laughs> and the amount right. of trees that are being cut down yeah. to, you know, facilitate that. So, yeah, it was definitely one of the things that was on my list to eventually check and see, you know, which is the most sustainable way to manage my body when I die. But So what's interesting is that, um, I mean, and we can talk more either now or another time about there are some um, alternatives to flame-based cremation and uh traditional burial or, or even mm-hmm. an additional additional options for that final laying to rest, which legally is called disposition. But this conversation is only about disposition. There are so many other choices from the point of when you die um, to how you are laid to rest, where people can have who they are be expressed. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, our goal is that people that they explore the reality of their mortality in a way that lights up their life. Like not in a way, because we just know by exploring the fact that someday, one day, inevitably we are all going to die and we don't know when Mm -hmm. it does uh, really inspire us to identify who and what matter most to live our lives as a true expression of who we are. So that's the living part. But what also um, is uh, kind of uh, unknown to most people is that after they die, the guidelines or directions that they leave to people about how they're cared for 
creates lots of opportunity for building community, for um, self-expression, for continuing the legacy that has been a part of our life, consciously or unconsciously, we all have a legacy. Mm -hmm. And that continues, and I'm sure people can imagine like some of the, you know, to be dramatic, the horror stories about planning that was or wasn't done, family conflict, anxiety, chaos, that becomes part of your legacy, like it or not, if you haven't prepared and thought ahead about how you want to be cared for after you die. And that's a realm of our work we call departure directions. So, and I love that because it's so thoughtful and it is so enriching and it's exciting. It makes it exciting to think about, um, you know, the the leading up to death, but also what happens afterwards as well and the effect that that has. And of course, who who wouldn't want to build community even after we're gone? So that brings me back to, obviously, when you came together and decided to create Willow, I want to know more about that because you clearly saw that there was a gap somewhere. Yeah, so I was going to, we were, yeah, we're we're on a thread and it's kind of going all over the place, but that's fine. Um, So when I approached Michelle, we're going back however many years, six, seven years, to say, no, that was when I found out what she was up to. But when I approached Michelle, say, three, four years ago, four years ago to say, hey, you want to start a business, something related to, like, what you're up to, death and dying? And her her reaction was, maybe. (laughs) Well, remember, I talked about being so burnt out, and now I'm working part-time, and I'm like... Uh, are you kidding (laughs) and which isn't quite the reaction I wanted however um (laughs) the reality was I didn't know what that business was going to be about like I just knew it's something about death and dying I don't really know how to monetize it I don't I just know that I'm really drawn to this like that's that's me like I'm drawn to something I have to go and explore it until I have the 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 path clear like is it a yes or is it a no so what we decided to do is to brainstorm on a regular basis so every week or two we would get together for half day or a full day and just like get on our computers and research and um, come up with ideas like what are other people doing what could we do what is it and it really it took a year no exaggeration a year of this but it was a, it was a very enjoyable year it was really fun and yeah and in that year we talked about all the different realms we could be focusing on that have to do with death and dying which is now part of our reality of a mortality planning checklist and um, we realized that what we wanted to do was, was around education. Mm-hmm. And we almost called it D-School. <laughs> but we didn't. Um, Death School, D-School. Yeah. And so if anybody didn't pick up on that, there's Marie Folio. <laughs> she teaches an amazing program. It's like a mini MBA that's probably even better than most MBAs. And it's called B-School right. for business school. And um, I, I did find out that D school existed for design school. Oh, it did. It's something like that. Anyway, yeah. whatever. But death school, that's great. Yeah, I yeah, love death it. School. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, our, it was we're just, we really were clearly wanting to do something around education and for, for not for the dying, but for the living. So which that, what that means, obviously, everyone who's is alive. But there's, there's a lot of tools for people or it's not even tools. There's a lot of, um, uh, let's call it opportunities. Let me rephrase this totally. There, there are a number of people out there who are, who are going into hospices and palliative care units and, and trying to work with the people who are, whose life is you know, going to end very imminently. We were really clear, like, although we totally welcome people who are in that situation, and we have worked with people who are close to death, and we've worked with people who are, have terminal illnesses you know, in a year or two down the road, the vast majority of people we work with are healthy and ha- just know that someday, one day, they're going to die. They're, they're not dealing with any sort of imminent um, situation. So who? what's the age category that you would say that you work with most? Are they like 
they're not people they're not millennials i'm assuming we we do occasionally have millennials uh-huh. but i'd say the 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 largest group that we work with are boomer women okay yeah. oh boomer women women yeah. uh, we do have men uh, there's all i'd say 15 to 20% and okay. amazing men and women yeah. um, but it's the the biggest group for us is boomer women interesting and do you think that's is it characteristics of women personalities of women are they planners are they contemplators are men avoiders i mean i know for in my business men do not like to take themselves to the doctors to figure out what's wrong with them they will wait until they're literally having a heart attack before they want to change anything (laughs) i don't know if it's the same thing in well i my sense of why it's boomer women is that i'm guessing if we looked at the marketplace around personal growth and development Mm -hmm. that that's dominated by boomer women one they have disposable income they have dis- they have uh, discretionary time often mm-hmm. they may be retired or part-time working or entrepreneurs or um, they know themselves and they like exploring and learning about themselves and uh, also being engaged in the world because this is very much also about community connections so mm-hmm. i'd say the majority of women the majority of people are boomer women i'd get more specific to say they're women in their 60s who um, are freed up in some way from the caregiving yeah. uh, worlds, uh, not always at all, but um, and able to just learn and grow and explore on their own. So that's who makes the time to come to our events or to soon uh, purchase our tools and use them on their own or who come to our retreat in Mexico, yeah. right? Yeah, which I can't wait to talk about that retreat yeah. in Mexico. Um, I'm getting excited about it. I don't even want to wait till I'm 60 before I start. Yeah, well, um, like I said, we have thinking. people of all ages. We really do. Yeah, 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 that's amazing. And do you find that that when the people do come to you, is it ever fear based or is it truly proactive? Um, that self growth, just another dimension of self growth. Maybe we can both respond yeah. to this. My sense is that many of the people who come to us have been touched by loss. So uh, and specifically, I'm thinking about an illness. So someone's capacity has changed, maybe their own or someone in their life, a brother, a sister, a good friend, a cousin, uh, a workmate, maybe a sudden death in their life, a parent's death. And they recognize that some of those people, and they may have had this themselves, if, for example, they have lived with and maybe have now moved through a, 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 an illness, that when there is a sense of death is imminent or they're close to that, there can be a real charge in life to like, oh my gosh, like I'm like going for it. I'm living all out. I'm saying what I need to say. I'm being myself because I know my time is limited or they observe that in somebody else. So there's a sense of, I want some of that, right? Or they've been so moved by the death of someone who, for example, uh, was was filled with regret, you know, um, or they didn't do any planning ahead. They didn't do any preparing for their inevitable death, and they saw the fallout in the family. So they've somehow been touched by um, a death or grief, and they um, just know that there's they see opportunity for themselves there. So I think that's a, a big chunk of of the people who come our way. Yeah, and in very short addition to that is, you said, is it fear-based? I think it's curiosity-based for most mm. people. I, I like more people who are, have fear around death to, to come, and we occasionally have one or two, but most people who are have the fear like will be afraid of this too, which is unfortunate because like, I'm just thinking of somebody I know who was, she hated going to funerals because of how it made her feel 
when she was there. Like she couldn't handle the grief, um, no matter who it was. She came to one of our events and actually had a funeral to go to the very next day. Mm. And she told me that it was a completely different experience. She could just like be with the joy and beauty of it all, as opposed to just feeling so um, sad. I mean, obviously, sad and sadness is great. Is is what you need to feel, but it, but it consumed her like too like too much, mm-hmm. so she could be with both. Is basically what I'm saying. The, the other thing is that um, we often hear people say, "Nobody in my life wants to talk about this." Mm-hmm. Nobody people think I'm morbid, or people are like, "Oh, don't let's just Bad you know we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there." It's like you know you're gonna get pregnant if you talk about sex. You're gonna die if you talk about death. Well, people so, ask me that all the time. They're like, "You are surrounded by cancer. You talk about cancer. You talk about yeah. disease. You know, aren't you worried that yeah, it's if. going to manifest in your body and that the universe is gonna give it to you?" And and I'm like, absolutely not. In fact, I think it's the opposite yes, because yes. I talk about it so much that it allows me to understand all aspects of it. And then therefore I have more choices, like choices around my diet, choices around doctors that I can go. If I ever got velvetinia, I know who to go to. I'm going to go see Dr. <laughs> Davis. You know, And so I imagine it's the same for you, that it empowers you and it actually makes you feel stronger. It's movement it. as opposed to stuckness is exactly. really what it's about. Yeah. And a sense of embracing, right? So you know, cancer is part of life. Mm-hmm. It is life. It's, it's you. Yeah. It's 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 who someone is. Um, it's, it's part of all of us to a degree. And you know, death is a natural part of the cycle of life. So to and we don't have a right to live till we're eighty something, right? People die suddenly all the time. People in different parts of the world die, you know, in different ways unfamiliar to us. Children die a lot. Infants die. Mothers die. So you know, we have this privilege in many ways, of um, life expectancy into our 80s. And we don't know what's going to happen. So life is unpredictable. And and death is predictable. It is. Birth so, and death, like those are two things that are uh, given that we know, but then everything else in between is. You know, Michelle was just circulating a, a lovely little Snoopy comic on Facebook. And, and uh, Charlie Brown says to Snoopy, we only live once. And Snoopy says, wrong. We only die once. We live every day. I saw that. <laughs> that it was awesome? beautiful. Yeah, I just saw that. I must have seen your post. It yeah. was, yeah, it's so true. And we do live every day. Yeah. yeah. So in that living, we want people to feel informed about their choices and empowered that if they don't have the information or the the service providers that they want to turn to for their planning, whatever dimension that is, whether it's legal and financial planning or health and personal care planning, um, decluttering and organizing and getting their their various affairs in order that they feel empowered to ask for what they want mm-hmm. or to ask for help in sorting through what they want to explore doing things differently to know that they have in our our way of things things they have the right to do things the way um they wish to obviously in the guidance of the law but in a, and in a way that reflects who they are because mm-hmm. all of this end of life you know, all of what matters then is what matters now. And, you know, we have our own little stories about how what matters in the end is what matters now. Can I tell you my story? Yeah, I <laughs> want to hear that. Yeah. What ha- so say that again. What, what matters, all that matters, all all that matters in the end yeah. is what matters now. Is that exactly? More or less. Good, yeah. good, yeah. Good, Something good. like that. I love that. it. Yeah. I love it. Tell me more about that. So um, I recall um, in writing my departure directions feeling really clear about how I wanted my body to be, after I died, I wanted to 
um, stay wherever I was or be brought to somewhere that was home. You know, I don't know how I'm going to die. I could die in a car accident. But I want to be spend time after I'm dead in a beautiful place, um, like surrounded by beauty, in um, natural fibers and with um, people who love around me. And I... Um, articulated my departure directions that the reason I want to do that is to honor my body. I'm like, you know, my body has it's walked me through this life. It's served me so well and tirelessly for all these years, whenever it is that I die. So that's happening over here. Like I'm working on my departure directions one day. Later that week, I gifted myself with sleeping in and I was mm-hmm. um, texting a girlfriend about how, you know, I was really happy that I had, you know, given myself this like little break because you know I'm feeling so tired you know parenting daughtering businessing (laughs) and all of a sudden it struck me that oh my gosh like I'm so clear that when I'm dead I want my body to be honored how is it that I can struggle so much in my day-to-day living to honor my body to get the rest I need to get the exercise I need to feed my body what it really needs and wants so the clarity about the end illuminated something about my life now mm-hmm. and I wasn't expecting that and uh, that's what happens is by pondering what we want to have happen after we die or in planning for that inevitable death in any dimension of this you know whether you could be preparing your will mm-hmm. and thinking about after you're dead that you know I promise you you're going to learn something about your life today that you didn't know and that's what I love so much about Willow there's um, a bunch of questions here that I pulled off your website because I just think they're so beautiful you're site is gorgeous but I love how you know how can your legacy help make the world a better place Mm -hmm. like what a gorgeous question and how does the impact of your mortality impact the way you live now Mm -hmm. and how will you continue to inspire people after you die like those are just I mean you have more questions on your website but those three questions I mean really we should all sit down and take the time to answer those questions now and I think just like you said how can that illuminate your life now so that you start making those changes today Mm -hmm. instead of 20 years from now or 50 years from now or not making them ever in your lifetime and you know when you get hit by a car in two years from now and you're or tomorrow or tomorrow or like so I just love those questions and for me I'm going to print those out I'm actually going to go home and and write those out so Rena um, tell me about some of the product lines that you offer at Willow and how people can participate in those and Great. Yeah, we have um, three product lines. Uh, One is called Seven Tools for Making Sense of Life and Death. And that's kind of like our foundation. It's not kind of like our foundation. It is our foundation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So that's basically a collection of exercises and tools taken from some of the things I'm about to talk about that prepare people to do the more pragmatic parts of planning. So um, we have both a print and a digital book that will be on our website imminently (laughs) not right now but you know within a few probably by the time this podcast is aired um and in that um in that in that product line um they're basically seven tools things about um figuring out what are your planning priorities what are your core values what's important to you what are the hopes and fears you have around death and dying uh thinking about the past like your experience with death and dying and grief how does that inform you now like what impact did it have on you Um, We have a series of questions that are sometimes called who and what matter most, and sometimes we call them questions that connect because they're very juicy connecting questions, similar to some of the ones you just read out. Um, We have uh, one tool that's all about 
the beginnings of thinking about your health and personal care wishes so that you can be prepared to write legal documents around that. And then another set of questions around is kind of preparing you for developing your departure directions. They're basically warm-up questions. And what happens is when people go through these, this uh, product line, this, this group of tools, they, um, <laughs> when they go through this group of tools, they, they, they're basically empowered to do the, to the pragmatic stuff. Because the risk is if you don't do this first, then either you're just never going to be motivated to do the, let's say you write, write your will or write your departure directions or even write love letters to people, uh, lasting messages to people you love. So one risk is that you just won't do it. And the other risk is that you will do it, but it won't really represent who you are. So it won't be the, it, won't, it just won't, won't be right, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that's one product line. Um, the, the other two product lines are, um, first one we refer to called departure directions. So that's all about how you want to be cared for after you die. So it's a set of either instructions or guidelines. It could be specific or it could be more general because sometimes you want to leave some things to, to the people to decide because it's part of their process. Um, from the moment of death um, to the moment, well, to, it could be just a disposition or it could be even after, like how you want to be remembered. There's something about that that I think is interesting because we see like just the way people carry out their weddings now. And mm-hmm. it is so fundamentally different than, you know, going to the Justice of the Peace with yes. two little <laughs> tiny cold rings and, you know, a Polaroid camera. Yes, and right. now, I mean, every yeah. detail from the chalkboard arrow signs and, yeah. the, you know, the, it's just amazing, like writing on rocks and mm-hmm. all the different things that people do. And their weddings are so beautiful. And I can't imagine these brides, these grooms, you know, they put so much effort into how they welcome their baby into the world, how they have their weddings, and then they're not addressing how they want to die. And then they end up having, you know, the uh, mother or mother-in-law or, you know, a friend that goes and plans their funeral in the most atrocious way that has doesn't reflect who you are. Exactly. And why would you want to go out in the world like that? No. So I imagine that there's going to be probably that same shift to... Yeah, we looked at, at wedding sites because it's it, there is a parallel for sure. You know, people, they look at, but when it comes to death, they think, oh, it's like, you know, do you want c- cream or milk in, with that? You know, that's it, like, yeah. you know, cremation or burial, and that's at the end of it. That's not, not that's just a tiny part of it. We've had the privilege to work with um, some people who uh, um, plan, really prepared for and did their departure directions and had the most beautiful funerals like you can imagine. I mean meaningful, so them. And one of them in particular was saying, this is the last great, this is going to be my last great project. Like he was so, yeah. ex- he was all excited about it. And and uh, his, his funeral was both um, full of sorrow, full of joy, uh, just, just. Uh, and yeah. beauty. And beauty, I imagine yeah. too, and of course that's how people are going to remember you as well. Mm-hmm. It's by how other people remember you yeah. on that day. Yeah. And one of my dear friends who had taught me about the Gerson therapy, I talk about him all the time, but Bill Nasby, um, you know, he went out of this world without any meds, no pain meds, no mm. nothing. And he resisted and he said, no way. I want to feel everything when I go out. And of course, the way I remember him is this strong, powerful man who knew exactly what he wanted. And the hospital staff remember him exactly the mm-hmm. same way, the palliative care team. And they still talk about him like they have never seen a man mm. transition in this world and die in such a profound way. And I mean, that's how you want to be remembered, not from, you know, the people who are bawling their eyes out and only like remembering the loss for themselves and mm-hmm. everything like that at the funeral, as opposed to, you know, honoring the way that, you know, you, you know, left mm-hmm. right down to 
the music and the food and everything exactly. that you know is served and prepared. Yeah. Okay, so that so that the departure directions. Yeah. And then the the final one. Yeah. Is called Legacy Love Letters and Heart Wills. I love the name of that. And um, so that is all about thinking about the impact you will leave after you die and actually writing lasting messages for people you love and for future generations. So the um, a love letter is probably what you think it is. It's something you'll write to one or more people, but it's like, dear so-and-so. And it's um, it's it's really a message of love. Like, I'm going to die. What do I want people to, what do I want, what lasting message do I want? Mm-hmm. And so there's many different ways to do it. We have like a little tool called the five-minute love letter to help people do it, just do it. Uh, and then the other one is the... the um, heart will. So a heart will is different than a love letter in that it's something that's kind of read, it's meant for a wider audience. So it could be read at a funeral or a goodbye ritual, or it could just be left with your documents, or it could be just given to certain people. Um, so it's a letter of, this is, this is what, it, this is, it, it, there's so many different ways you can, you could, so many different th- ways, blah, 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 so many different <laughs> things that could be in it, but it could be talking about your values and what's important to you. It could be life lessons. It could be your story, your people. It could be about your spiritual journey or even forgiveness. Like, I forgive this. Please forgive me for. And finally, it could be about what I'm grateful for in life. It's all those and or just some of those, whatever you want. And um, the beauty, the, the best thing about preparing a heart well is the process of actually preparing a heart well. Because mm-hmm. when you're preparing that heart well, you get really clear about yourself and what's important to you. And it becomes a document you can live by. So even though you're writing this for the day that you will die, it's really a manifesto for life. Mm-hmm. You can learn about yourself and you can refer to it whenever you need to. You know what I love about that too is that, you know, we have, I love the whole self-help movement <laughs> because it's all about taking charge of your life and your and your well-being and your spirit and your body and um you know and some people hate the whole self-help movement and everybody's got a different version of you know what you need to do but the thing is is that there's not that everybody has probably what 30 40 books on their shelf or on their audio um you know um their iphone and not everybody goes to read them and do them because there's not that sense of urgency around mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. because people think they're going to live forever. Mm-hmm. What I love about this is that you're actively saying, you know what, it can end tomorrow. So I'm actually going to do the work now mm-hmm. as opposed to putting it off. And this is what I think I love about this being in the context of death and dying um, that makes it that it's not just going to be a book that's going to be put up on the shelf and yeah. saved for later. So do you want to talk about how people can access these things? Yeah. So right now, people can access the five-minute love letter tool of that exercise uh, on our website. It's There's a little pop-up that invites people to download it. Uh, so our website is willoweol.com. So willoweol.com. And um, soon on that same website, the ebook and the print version of Seven Tools for Making Sense of Life and Death will be available. And we're also creating an online program centered around that uh, workbook. And uh, just to say, the ebook is fillable. Um, and for Legacy Love Letters and Heart Wheels, uh, we're going to get to talking about how people can experience that in an in depth, intensive, um, beautiful way uh, shortly. But um, over time, we, we have uh, lots of free tools around um, each of these product lines that we will be making available. So the workbook for Seven Tools for Making Sense of Life and Death, you know, next up in our production schedule, will be working on 
the same kind, a similar workbook for departure directions. But I wanted to actually talk about the impact, some other impacts about writing love letters and writing heart wills. So this is a, 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 another personal story that, um, so Rena and I both have love letters for our young daughters mm-hmm. and knowing that uh, I don't know how old she's going to be when I die. I was thinking, you know, I had lots of things to say to her. But I wanted to also just think about like a core piece of advice. Like if there's just one thing I want her to have from me, like the, the message I want to instill in her as a living mother, mm-hmm. um, what do I want her to hold on to, whether she's 12 when I die or 22 or 32? And in articulating that, I really gifted myself with some insight. So as I said before, like I've done loads of therapy. I love therapy, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of hours, thousands of dollars. And in essence, it all comes down to the same message, but I had never articulated it in one line. But I did when writing my daughter a love letter. And that message is that I am my own best friend. Mm-hmm. And it's my relationship with myself that needs attention, tenderness, and care. And if she can carry that with her, um, I think she'll be good. Exactly. And uh, and right now, I frequently need to remind myself of that message. So, and I put that message in my heart will as well because I want to share it with my broader community. So, by writing that love letter and writing that heart will, um, and identifying those important messages, I've given something. I've given myself some um, a tool that helps me hold myself to account. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm struggling or stumbling. I can stop and say, how's it going, Michelle? Are you being your own best friend? And I find that really, really helpful. That's beautiful. And have you shared that with her? Or is that something you'll share with her later? I haven't shared her love letter with her. I think that uh, she's 12 and a half. Mm. I I think it would have um, more impact when she has some more maturity. But I have written a love letter that I did share with someone. Mm. Tell me about that. Uh, when we first started doing this work, I, I, of course I wanted to write a love letter to my daughter. That's the first love letter I wrote. But I knew the love letter that really needed to be written for my own healing. And because of, um, you know, one of the questions we ask is like, are there, um, are there relationships that, one, that you need to write? Mm-hmm. And my relationship with my brother is one that needed writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so needed attention. And so... Uh, I avoided writing that letter for probably about a year and a half. And then the last time we did a Legacy Love Letters and Heart Wills workshop, I declared, and that's the power of working in group, right, in community. I said to folks there, I said, I'm going to write a letter to my brother. And then I I wouldn't allow myself to not write it because I declared it aloud to these other people. And I wrote that letter. And because there was stuff to work out in our relationship, the process of writing... And people need to remember, you know, it is a process. You know, I began by, like, typing out, you know, some icky stuff, like, you know, my grievances and my blame and my shame and all sorts of, like, (laughs) And then, you know, our messaging is that this is a love letter. It's not a place to work things out. Mm -hmm. But I had had to get that out of my system in order to get to the loving messages. So those messages are about, you know, what I appreciate about him, what I'm grateful for. Um, what I've learned from him, uh, asking for forgiveness with my stinginess, mm-hmm. with my love. So I, I wrote those messages in a letter to him, and I did give it to him. And 
what happened for me was really transformative. It really softened my heart. And and that was a beautiful thing because it's allowed me to engage with him in a more compassionate way, in a more loving way. And that message, that love letter will always be part of my documents so that he will get it again, yeah. um, you know, after I die. But it was very powerful. Mm-hmm. One thing I got out of uh, writing love letters, uh, writing a love letter to my daughter in particular, it, it wasn't a, a specific message like Michelle was talking about. It was just the power of remembering like there's a there's memento was it memento mori remembering that you're going to die uh when it comes to my daughter so just yesterday um i was just going to illustrate what happened just yesterday we had one of these typical sort of wicked teenage arguments um never had one of those no, ever you no you can't relate not in no, our household no. <laughs> and uh there was lots of tears and lots of anger she was really angry at me and then and i was on my way to facilitate a workshop so i had to leave the house and i have this thing ever since i got involved with this work I will never depart or go to bed with anger at my daughter. Just I just don't do it. Like I, I don't think I don't I don't think I've thought about that before. But I just will never do it. And I literally said to her, "My, I have to go, but I I don't want to leave angry. What if I What if I'm in a car accident right now, right now, and you don't ever see me again? What would that be like? Like it sounds really horrible, but she's used to me talking like this. It doesn't freak her out at all. But that is what propels us to say, okay, we gotta we gotta get to the end of this. We gotta get to the love again. And we did. We always do. We never leave without saying I love you. And she there was like I just thought, how am I gonna get there? We're she's so angry at me right now. Mm-hmm. I just I just didn't stop until we got there. I love that. And it's interesting. My daughter, who's also your daughter's <laughs> friend, um, as well, they've known each other since they were wee ones, and the same thing. We had Probably our first real big argument and where it was me. First ever? First ever real big one, but real big one. And um, and even my little one, she had to go outside. She's like, I can't take it. And, um, you know, but it's the same thing. It's, you know, and I said to her while we were arguing, I said, I know you think I'm like this helicopter parent. I know you think, you know, you're 14. You think you can go out into the world and you can live this life on your own. And she probably can. But, you know, I had to say to her, I said the same thing. I said, I will never, ever let you leave for school in the morning, let you go off up the mountain by yourself, let you go off to your friends by yourself without like squeezing you as hard as I can possibly squeeze you and tell you how much I love you because of the fact that you can leave and that could be the end mm-hmm. of it that we ever see you or that you ever see me. And for her, she's like, oh, you're always thinking about death. And it's not that I'm always thinking about it, but what it does is it reminds me to love deeply and to love fully and to express that to my family all the time. And I love that. If that's what, you know, contemplating my death does for me, it makes me love my family so hard and so strong, then I will contemplate it. It's the most powerful tool. Death is the most powerful tool tool I know to um, that, that... empowers me to live and love fully i nothing else exactly all you have to do is remember this i'm gonna die one day exactly and it could be tomorrow yeah. and so is, and is this whatever i'm going through now is it really worth it like is this how i want to be living this one and precious finite life mm. yeah <laughs> and it's true because it is this one beautiful precious finite life and mm-hmm. yeah and we can choose to make the best of it and we can choose to embrace it with love as opposed to fear and then you know i think when we do that then we get to go out in this world with without regrets just by doing that one act and love letters are so powerful. We have a campaign called P.S. I Love You, That's and right. P.S. stands for Plant Strong. And <laughs> the reason I came up with it, 
And how I came up with it is uh, when our book came out, Eat Real to Heal, which is a five-week program that you know anyone can follow so that they can do a modified version of the Gerson therapy. And I've had hundreds of people go through this program and they've re- reversed their diseases, um, which has been amazing and in a very modified version of the Gerson therapy. And But what I didn't want with our book is when somebody gets sick, that you know the whole community comes after them and they're like read this and watch this documentary and you got to do this and right. you have to change yourself and you have to change the way you eat and you know put putting blame on them it's because you never address that emotion or you never or your diet was like x y and z and that's not what i wanted when in fact the reason why people do that the reason they why they rush to that person who's sick and tell them to change is because ultimately they love them. Mm-hmm. They want them to live a long time. They don't want them to be sick and in pain. They want them to be disease-free. So the whole love letter campaign is just to say, hey, you know what? P.S. I love you. And, you know, a plant-strong diet, you know, can give you benefit. It can change your health. It can save your life. It can save your <laughs> life. But first, I just want you to know that I love you and I want you to live a long time so that we can go on that cruise together when we're 80 years old and learn the cha-cha and travel to Italy and eat, you know, drink limoncellos on the beach and, you know, all of those beautiful things. And it's really just to stop and say that. So it's not about putting blame and shame on anybody. It's just about saying, hey, you know what? I see you. I hear you. And Mm. I forgot to tell you I love you. And so I love the similarity in this. But what it does, it opens you up and it softens your heart and allows you to be more compassionate so you can just join them on that journey of healing no matter what journey they choose to take whether it is chemo or surgery or radiation or um you know whatever it is you know they want to go skydiving or they want to you know whatever it is drink the take the blue pill (laughs) and transition over to the other side without doing anything i mean that's all allowed so i love the similarities and i love what you said too about you know, that you might have to transition through the blaming and, and all of that. But then the love letter is truly just about saying, Hey, I love Mm -hmm. you. I think that's something that's really important. I'm going back to wills because I know there's this heart will piece, but can we talk about wills in general? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people come to me and they say, you know, we're all in our forties right now and friends in our fifties and sixties who are like, I haven't created a will yet. And I only did mine probably about five years ago. And it was a hard thing to do. And Mm -hmm. I cried in my lawyer's office and I even asked and I said, has anybody ever created a will and the very next day they die? And he was like, yep, there was one guy. But <laughs> for the most part, people don't die the day they create their will. It's again, it's not like you're attracting the universe to your side to mm-hmm. say, okay, now that it's done, that's it, your life is over. But there's really important um, tools to create from a legal perspective. And do you have a lot of people who are in their 60s and coming to you who've never done that? And what do you advise them or what is your suggestion? Sure. Um, So I was at a breakfast gathering about six weeks ago in Vancouver and um, was talking to people I hadn't met before. And then when they learned about what I do, there was this one man who said to me, okay, so you're going to tell me the first thing I need to do is write write my will, right? I said, actually, no. (laughs) That is not the first thing I would tell you to do. I would suggest you do. I wouldn't tell you to do anything. But (laughs) it's not the first thing I would recommend. I said the first thing I'd recommend is to do the seven tools for making sense of life and death. Because there's Mm -hmm. a reason you haven't done your will. It's because you're stopped. You're stopped. Exactly. You're You're stopped because you don't know what you want it to be about. You're stopped because you don't yet. So... We've had people um, work with us. Uh, we, we weren't even talking about legal wills. We were talking about um, departure directions, for example. This one woman w- was joined us for one of our very first workshops on departure directions, and her, her outcome from it was, now I'm ready to write my will. She was in her 60s, mm. and she said the next day she went and she got that done. Like, it just she'd put it off and put it off. So um, 
Yes, wills are really important. I mean, there are many important things to prepare for in case, I mean, for, for the case, that, for when you die, but in case you die soon and unexpectedly and la la. Um, and so basically if you haven't done it, there's a reason. Uh, you're, you're, there's something you just don't want to look at. And so our, all our programs, all our products, lines, help you to just be at peace with the fact that someday, one day, this journey, as we know it, is going to end. And whatever happens next is we don't know for sure, but let's just be prepared for that. And so first, to be prepared for that, first we have to be kind of like, it's kind of an overused word, but we have to be at peace with it. Mm-hmm. And some people go beyond that and are kind of, like you said before, kind of excited, not excited to die, but excited for the things that, that can uh, happen that are possible with or in preparing for death. Yeah. No. So, Yeah. Yeah, and it's like anything that we do in life. I mean, there's so much excitement about completing something as well. So going through this and completing this and just seeing it and, you know, and it's definitely not that once you write your your love letter or your legacy piece or your departure directions that you can't go back and change it. But there is something wonderful in knowing that you've actually address something instead of sweeping those feelings under the carpet. Yeah, the heart will, some people call it a living will. Mm. Oh, no, that's a different one, right? A, but a, 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 a legacy, legacy letter. letter. But we, we, we call it a heart will because it really is from the heart. Yeah, I mean, we just we just really like the term. But I'll just tell you where I was stuck because I didn't, it wasn't too, too long ago that I did my legal will. And I was stuck on the question where it says, you know, I knew that if I, when I died, that the vast majority of my assets would go to my daughter, my one and only daughter, and that's uh, easy because I'm single. Um, but what would happen if she and I were to die at the same time, which mm-hmm. is possible because we drive in the same car and we travel and all this stuff? Then what do I want for my assets? And I was completely stuck at that one. I was just like, yikes. Uh, let's see, I have siblings, but they, they're not, you know, this is going to go public. They don't know this. But it, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you know, do they really need this money? Probably not. I, I w- so I, I got clear that I wanted to donate it to charity. So then it was like a question of which charities what. So what it took was for me to have a conversation with Michelle, like just brainstorm, like let's talk about this. Let's like just just talking about it. And then I was just like, I can do this. And then it was a question of like really thinking about which issues in the world are most um, important to me, dear to my heart. And I, I picked two different issues. And then a little what bit of research. What were those issues? One is about the education of girls. Mm. And the other is peace in the Middle East. Nice. Yeah. So it was just about finding those um, charities. And I, you know, to, I can't even say what the charities are because I don't know if I actually named the specific charity or made a few suggestions. And then I put the names of, of people for each of those issues to be consulted with because mm-hmm. I don't know what, like even if I picked a charity right now, when I die, maybe that charity's going under, maybe it's, yeah. Yeah, who knows. So it's like this is more a charity like this or charity right. like that. And leave it to the people who... Uh, who live on to to figure it out but they know what's important to me yeah I love that I love that so you talked about workshops and I know that you were gathering you gather with people and you have what are these workshops like can you describe what they're like and how sure. people can participate so we have a partnership with Mountain View Cemetery as Rena said that's owned and operated by the city of Vancouver and they um, support us to host a once a month workshop. We call it a reality of our mortality learning circle. It's free to the public, thanks to the sponsorship of Mountain View Cemetery. And uh, every month uh, we host this gathering and we explore a different topic. And we do that in an interactive, engaging way. So it usually involves a variety of ways of of exploring one's own thoughts and feelings and experiences from 
um, pair sharing and group discussion to we work with Play-Doh sometimes, uh, mm -hmm. creative expression through uh, art materials. We might show um, video clips, listen to songs. So it's very engaging. It's not a Rena and Michelle are here to tell you about something, sit in your rows of chairs and listen. Mm -mm. Uh, it's not like that at all. And um, so last night, for example, we had one of those gatherings and the topic was exploring sustainability and death. Mm. How to have your choices f at the end of your life reflect what's important to you now. We've explored topics like remembering and being remembered, um, looking at a taste of legacy love letters and heart wells, uh, a whole bunch of topics. Like the difference between fear of death and fear of dying, for yeah. example, which are different. Yeah. Oh, uh, on April 29th, we're having, a, so it's basically usually the last Monday of every month, and they're listed on the events section of our website. Mm -hmm. So we do those once a month, periodically at Mountain View Cemetery or at other venues at the invitation of somebody who'd like to host us. We'll facilitate a workshop around departure directions or legacy love letters and heart wills. So this Saturday we'll be in Victoria, thanks to Royal Oak Burial Park, who's offering a workshop to uh, people in their community on that topic. And on April 6th, we're doing, a, again, a free day-long workshop on legacy love letters and heart wills in Vancouver, thanks to Mountain View Cemetery. That's amazing. I want to participate in one of these. And so what about, I, I know that you've had requests from people, you know, all over the world who've said, hey, how can I bring this to my community? Mm -hmm. And what are, what's the plan for your business around that? Um, we are planning, it's not in the planning right now, but it, we, we will be doing a licensing program where we will offer uh, people in other communities to offer these kinds of workshops using our curriculum to people in their own community. Yeah. So part of what's exciting about that to us is one, just reaching more people. So, you know, we're looking at the English speaking world to start, yeah. but you know, that people in communities all over North America and Europe, Australia, New Zealand will be able to engage in legacy love letters and heart wills, departure directions, making sense of life and death. And also the idea of supporting entrepreneurs so that people can generate a livelihood out of doing this important work. So exactly. we have the, you know, the gift of having uh, Rena's expertise in curriculum development and our just our joint experience and knowledge to, and we've created these curriculums and we don't want to keep them for ourselves yeah. we want to spread them far and wide so having people who can uh, engage in the world as um, with our our blessing and our materials as facilitators in their local communities and partnering with their local organizations, whether it's cemetery homes or cemeteries or funeral homes or community organizations. We also do volunteer development um, mm -hmm. using these same materials. So we've done things for Surrey Hospice, for example. We've done things for Family Services of North Shore. We've done things for staff development with the uh, Notary Society of British Columbia. So there's like there's an endless number of community business professional organizations that somebody can partner with in order to spread the word about um, the reality of our mortality as a tool for living and loving fully now. And I love that because, I mean, I would want to sign up for that. And I know a lot of our students who go through our Eat Real to Heal nutrition and detox training would also love it because it just complements the work yeah. that we're doing. We've you worked know. with cancer patients. Exactly. Yeah. And so to be able to have that, and we definitely need that in Whistler. And it's interesting that you said English-speaking community because yeah. I was thinking about this. And the one thing that I feel, and I know a lot of people I've you know spoken with, we all feel we lack that in our communities we don't have elders anymore we don't have um these 
unified commune living support systems where we talk about birth and death and and, and everything in between um, and it's not a natural part of our conversations where in a lot of cultures out there I mean dying is talked about just as much and celebrated mm-hmm. just as much as living and I was just in my uh, grandma's village in Malawi Africa and we were fortunate to be driving down the road when we were leaving and we saw this beautiful ceremony taking place and there was the chief there. I mean, there's no plumbing, there's no electricity Mm -hmm. in these villages and the people walked for miles to gather and to celebrate. I don't know who had died, but it was, you could see a very, very different experience than Mm -hmm. the way we approach death here in in our Western civilized Mm -hmm. cultures. And so I can see why this is something where there's a business model around it because it's just not in... um, incorporated and it's not within the fabric of our society here anymore to talk about these things so i just love that you're offering this and you're actually recreating that again for communities you know, a, um, a friend and colleague of ours uh, Stephen garrett who's the executive director of the memorial society of british columbia he speaks about um, death as an opportunity for community development mm-hmm. and I, I i definitely see that um I also think we could expand that even further to talk about, you know, aging, um, aging and dying and death as a, basically an opportunity for village making. You know, my dad exactly. is in his 80s and he recently um, has had some health concerns and he lost his driver's license. Mm-hmm. And until we were able to get Handy Dart in place and kind of create a new rhythm for him, we had to call upon um, his neighbors to support him. And they were so happy to do that. It wasn't very easy for him to receive that, mm-hmm. um, which just speaks to kind of how, as a family, you know, we've lived our, he's lived his life in that community, feeling connected to people, but not so connected. Exactly. And I do feel like um, there is a, a shift coming in, you know, the growth of co-housing as an example, um, and the growth of, you know, community housing and co-ops. So I feel like people are recognizing that um, you can die on your own, but I don't think you want to. No, no. I don't think that we keep working so hard and fighting so hard to have this amazing existence in our life just to, you know, go out by ourselves and Mm -hmm. die a quiet, slow, lonely, painful death. (laughs) I mean, nobody wants that at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the end of the day, I think just going out in this world and being loved and being remembered in a beautiful healthy way and also being celebrated having our lives celebrated right Mm -hmm. so tell us about um this retreat in mexico which now for me sounds more enticing than ever um and and i imagine it's a hard job for you with this you know to explain what it is that you do um you know how can be beneficial i mean i've i've known rena for so long and she's taught me all about you know willow and i've been on the website but now to be able to sit here with you and and i'm excited like i'm excited about end of life so i want to know about this retreat in um san jose del cabo mexico that's happening from october 30th to november 5th of this year yeah. what what can people expect to experience there so what they what you can expect is that you're going to be uh, spending time in this charming village, uh, no village, sorry, charming small town, uh, not the hustle and bustle of a big Mexican city, but a, a charming small town, um, and that you will have a chance to reflect on the life you're living and really identify who and what matters most to you and have time to write, to, to ponder, to f- reflect, to engage with other people in a loving, supportive environment. And you're going to come away with your end of love life letters written 
and a heart well written. So you're going to re-energize and um, feel inspired and a sense of peace that, you know what, I don't want to die tomorrow, but if I die on the plane home mm-hmm. <laughs> or if I die a week from now, I have the most important love letters written. I have a, a, a heart will, which is really like a, a manifesto for life, as Rena said, that can be shared when you die or for future generations, like what I wouldn't give to have something like that for my grandmothers or my grandfathers, mm-hmm. my mother, you know? So you're going to have the time and space to do that in addition to having um, downtime and uh, local culturally um, cultural activities, including a guided tour of the cemetery on Day of the Dead. So you're going to have an intimate experience of uh, a culture that does death and dying different than us and how they honor their ancestors. So we'll be doing that for an afternoon um, on one of the days. That is beautiful. Beautiful. Um, So any last words from you ladies that anything we didn't touch on that you want to touch on? We can go back to talking about vaginas. (laughs) (laughs) I think the one thing that we haven't noted that's really, you know, on a pragmatic level, like the minimal investment people can make is I would suggest to subscribe to mm-hmm. our mailing list because mm-hmm. every two to three weeks we send out a newsletter. And in that newsletter, we contemplate, we explore, we ponder the meaning of life and death. So we, um, you know, draw upon our knowledge last, the last uh, two, two posts ago was about sustainability and death. We provided some really interesting links for people that talk about other options in addition to burial. So human composting or mm-hmm. natural organic reduction is an option in development. I love it. Water-based cremation. So green cremation is an option that is available in three Canadian provinces and 16 American states, but not yet in British Columbia. Wow. You would know that if you'd receive the newsletter and take the time to read it, right? And the, you know, the most recent post... We share our own journey. So I wrote about my experience at the Spring Equinox Gathering of Kalanish and how taking the time to pause and be in this beautiful community, which is all about supporting people whose lives are irrevocably changed by cancer Mm -hmm. and their supporters and friends, and I'd be one of those supporters and friends. I paused that evening and I came away so nourished and I recognized that a shift has happened in my life where I am no longer in this interim time as the poet John O'Donohue writes about and someone recited one of his poems from memory Mm. um, that I um, the seeds have cracked open and I'm bending to the light and our our hope and our intention is that people read these articles which and then at the bottom we include news of of our upcoming events and offerings that they are both informed and empowered and maybe at the core they're just inspired they're inspired to say this contemplating my mortality and doing it consciously and being connected to others it's worth it Mm -hmm. because it's going to light up my life Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautifully said and so the newsletters essentially uh, showcase our most recent blog posts and those blog posts exist permanently on our website so if people just want to check out our writing they can just go to the website and under blog see them all there and it's where we first offer free tools so Mm -hmm. um there's more of that to come i love that um i'm i'm on a board for the whistler summit center which is a lifelong learning center that's going to be built for the community here in whistler and one of the things that's different about it is that um 
you know, the learning will, for the young students who are going to be going to school on this campus, they will, for example, learn about chemistry and biology in the community gardens that are grown there. We're going to have senior citizens and daycares um, mixed because in Whistler, it's a, we have an aging population. I mean, really, of the the incredible humans that came here, the pioneers who trekked up here in snowshoes and then built Whistler from scratch and snowflakes. And they're in their 80s now, And they're in their 80s now. And they don't want to leave the community that they built, but it's a hard community to age in. And, but, and we, they don't need to age the way that we've currently designed the systems with, you know, what we technically call old folks' homes. And, mm-hmm. you know, and those those homes are changing now, too. But in Whistler, I mean, there's not a place that you can go to. Um, there's no palliative care. There's, you know, none of that. So mm-hmm. this um, Lifelong Learning Center will really be mm-hmm. about keeping, um, ha- having a place and holding a space where you can age gracefully and keep your mind active and live and connect with the, with the younger generations and the children. And it's going to have, you know, after school and nighttime daycare for adults who and, and moms and dads who want to get micro degrees and not have to leave the community. But Love I that. can see Willow definitely having a place at that center as well where, you know, we can have these workshops going on. So we're going to have to train some people up here so that they can um, fulfill that legacy piece on yeah, your behalf. Yeah, and guess what? That workbook can be sold in bulk for a lower price point. So exactly. <laughs> well, I want to have mm-hmm. it offered at the Green Mustache in all of our locations as well because, again, yeah, awesome. you know, we're about, you know, putting off morbidity and in increasing longevity and so that people age well and gracefully and live long and well and free of disease. But And this is something that I definitely want to have in our retail section so people can get access to it there. And your books are so beautifully designed. Uh, so thank you for putting all of this together and building this incredible business um everybody can check out willow at willow e-o-l end of life willow eol.com and we're going to have all of the um all of these pieces included in the show notes as well and this will go live in a few weeks time for everybody who um will be listening to this so any last minute tidbits any last minute stories that you want to share with everybody Mm. I think just what comes to mind for me is really the message, like, you know, when you speak about the, um, you know, your vision and what you're up to with um, Eat Real to Heal and the green mustache and all of that, that um, it's the same gig, right? Like we're doing the same thing. We're doing this. It's all about just, just saying that your mortality is an opportunity in disguise. And this is about living your best life about loving fully, about knowing who and what matter most to you, and developing a sense of peace through preparation for that inevitable one day when you're going to die. Mm. What she said. Mm-hmm. What she said. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You ladies are beautiful inside and out. Your company is amazing inside and out. Um, Including and my vulva, yes. Including <laughs> your vulva, yes. We cannot forget about your beautiful vulva. we got to bring it back full circle. That's right. Um, wonderful. So thanks so much for being here on the Eat Real, Eat Real to Heal podcast at the 101.5 Whistler FM studios. Thank you to Whistler FM for letting us come in here and host this beautiful podcast uh, so we can share stories to help the world heal, help the world plan and prepare for death. 
gracefully and um, and yes to share those stories so that other people can be empowered and inspired to just be on this beautiful earth living a beautiful life um so stay tuned for the next podcast uh we will be with you be be well eat well live long and thrive Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Rena and Michelle of Willow End of Life. And moving forward, another retreat that I want to share with you is our own Eat Real to Heal retreat that we're hosting on Cortez Island in beautiful British Columbia at the Hollyhock Retreat Center. Hollyhock was created in the 60s and as a place to bring Um, together learning and beautiful workshops and stunning life transforming gatherings that you as an individual, as a business person, as a mother, a father, um, a, a community member, somebody who is inspired to not only change yourself, but to change the world. Well, Hollyhock Retreat Center is the place to go. If you've ever been to Esalen in California, you can get a taste and a feel of what Hollyhock is like. Um, The two definitely go hand in hand. And I encourage you to sign up for our retreat. We're going to be spending five days together learning all about how to reverse disease using food as a medicine. And so we'll be in the kitchen getting our hands dirty, chopping up loads of fruits and vegetables. We're going to be talking about why you want to um, kick the grains just for the first four weeks while you do this life transformational disease kicking body regenerating tissue rehabilitating awesome lifestyle program based on the Gerson therapy which is what I've been teaching for the last 11 years to help thousands of people reverse their chronic degenerative diseases we're going to be doing yoga we're going to be contemplating your existence existence here on the planet as well and looking at how you spend your time your energy your thoughts your life and really transforming those so that you will want to put your body first you're going to want to put your mind first and your health first reclaim your life so you can achieve vitality so much energy so that you can start living on purpose living your purpose out so you can give your gifts into this world and make this world a truly outstanding amazing place to be for yourself for your family friends and others so the eat real to heal retreat is about food as medicine and it is about so much more than that so i hope you join us at hollyhock as well check out any one of our six green mustache locations in north vancouver port moody squamish whistler we also have a new location coming to edgemont village and then we also have a location in edmonton that is run by former and existing lawyer yoga instructor and yoga studio owner as well you can also if you're in edmonton check out her studio at yoga sorry studio x um, which is actually built within the green mustache space as well so after your yoga class you can enjoy a cold pressed juice and a delicious plant-based whole food meal that's made with no refined products that's sos free sodium oil 
and sugar free and only containing all the beautiful nutrients that mother nature has put directly into the foods that we need to be eating in abundance so go check out one of our green mustache locations tell us what you think and lastly sign up for one of our retreats at hollyhock and if not the hollyhock retreat then you can check out our retreat center at richer health retreat center com where we host three-day workshops and retreats to teach you how to eat real to heal if you can't do any of those three things then get a copy of my eat real to heal book you can get it on amazon or in most bookstores around the world it's selling like hotcakes and the beautiful thing about it is that we've had so many people write to us and tell us that by simply reading the book and doing exactly what it says word for word they've been able to be chronic pain free for the first time in their in years and years and years um, we've had a client who reversed her endometriosis for the first time since she was 14 and it's the first time she hasn't been taking any drugs for the chronic pain and so you too can get reprieve from your chronic illness you can reverse type 2 diabetes heart disease infertility migraines depression so many more lifestyle diseases by living the eat real to heal lifestyle so grab a copy of my book tell me what you think i want your feedback and i want to know your healing stories so thanks for being with us i hope you enjoyed this podcast today with rena and michelle from willow and stay tuned for our next podcast 